Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are Brian Tayara, who is the fishmonger, the owner, the operator of Our Local Catch, and John Dean, who is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Marine Biology at the University of South Carolina. And we're going to talk about local seafood and sustainable seafood today. So, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Glad to be here, Walter. Glad to be here. All right, Brian, let's talk a little bit about you. First of all, I love the fact you call yourself a fishmonger. What a wonderful 18th century term. Absolutely. But let's talk about what you do and how you gather the produce that you market. Well, I started out in my parents' seafood business, so I was born and raised into that. Uh, I started out just using their suppliers, but when I had a lot of uh, customers come in asking me for specific things like grouper and swordfish and tuna, I had to seek elsewhere. Uh, So I would go down to the coast myself with my pickup truck and fill up coolers full of uh, things that people wanted. I go down to uh, Merle's Inlet sometimes to get fish. I go down to uh, McClellanville to get oysters and clams, Charleston to get shrimp. And I have a, I'm working also with a guy just recently who goes down to Florida and gets all the long, long line products such as swordfish and tuna and the things that okay. people really so like. So you're actually based out of Florence. I'm it? based out of Florence. That's right. But your family's been in the fish business for three generations? Well, thir- yeah, 30 years. Not three years. 30 yeah. years. But everything you sell is fresh. That's your. That's your. Everything. Market. Everything is fresh, but we do. Uh, we do vacuum seal and freeze things that are available in Rosewood Market. I have a label that I, that I put on it. It just helps us uh, offer more. Well, you know, we're only in, in Columbia two days a week. You're able to buy our frozen, fresh frozen seafood that's vacuum sealed seven days a week. Okay. And I think that's a. It's a very important question, Walter, because there are certain places that market we serve only fresh. The reality is that that those terms really don't tell you about the quality of the fish. And so uh, fish don't understand uh, our calendars <laughs> and, and our, our limits and so forth. So when a f- particular fishery is in season and it's abundant and so forth, then the fish price goes down a little bit. But the other thing is that you can't always market the fish in that first day or second day. And there's no question that the quality of fish starts declining the minute they hit the deck. They have to be treated properly, and they have to be kept well iced with good ice. Right? Now, you say ice, not stuck in a refrigerator. You actually, It actually needs to be on ice. It's on the boat. On the yeah. boats. On the boats. Yeah. But then once it comes in, you can only sell so much per day and... What you need to do is take the highest quality fish that you haven't sold, and then you do a high-quality freeze and pack. And there are technologies now that didn't exist even five years ago. But what you can do is make a good prep of high-quality fish, put it in a shrink pack, and freeze it. It's a vacuum-sealed system and frozen. And you know from your own experience that you and I— share a source of sockeye salmon Mm -hmm. that after being frozen with that kind of a preparation for one year, you cannot tell it from a fresh fish when you thaw it properly. Yeah, it's it's not the thing of, you know, folks used to stick something in the freezer and then after six months it had freezer burn and (laughs) uh, dried out despite however you wrapped it or packaged it. So you've got your own processing facility there in Florence? Yeah, yeah, I use my my family's uh, seafood market and restaurant. I use their whole the, all their facilities, um, and I have a vacuum sealer on site. So I'm I'm very blessed to have that. And I noticed because I have I have checked your site off and on because we've been preparing to have you on for about six or eight weeks all now. Right. <laughs> Some weeks you'll say that you have certain catch available, and other weeks you won't. It, it's not, and it's all dependent on weather and just different logistics. Um, whenever you, when you go to a grocery store and they've always got a certain type of fish, it kind of makes you wonder, you know? And I'm sure we can all share horror stories. And I, <laughs> w- one of these is funny. is It's to sit in a restaurant in Charleston and have someone order salmon and ask if it's local and hear the wait person say, of course. <laughs> yeah. You know, Walter, that's, that's another important point is the credibility of a restaurant. I'm the wrong person to tell that to. Unfortunately, it's it's a relatively common occurrence. And, of course, one of the things that we started when we established our uh, Sustainable Seafood Initiative. John, let's talk about what that that means, the Sustainable Seafood Initiative. 
Well, the Sustainable Seafood Initiative we tried set up in Charleston initially, and it specified certain kinds of treatment and product. And one of them was credibility in the product. That is, if you said that you had this on the menu, it had to be exactly that. And we did use and identify sustainable fisheries. Now, that means that this is a fish that is maintaining its population at a level that you can harvest it mm-hmm. and and not hurt the population. One of the things that's difficult on the term sustainability is now become a, 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 such a term used for so many different things, and it's also become a marketing term rather than a technical term. So what we say is a sustainable fishery is one that is classified relative to two fundamental criteria. One is, is it overfished and is it overfishing? Mm -hmm. Overfished means what you have done in the past. It's what you've taken from that fishery. Could you you give an example? Uh, Well, let's talk, yeah. For example, in the early 80s, king mackerel, which had become a big recreational and commercial fishery, was overfished. The stock could not replace itself. And we were overfishing, meaning we continued to take more than the stock could sustain. So it was classified and given certain limits. This is done by the, for us, by the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council. There are eight regional councils in in the United States, and they operate through NOAA. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and they set the limits. And it's a complex process to get those limits set. So what we do is we use different management techniques. We use size limits, we use allowable catch limits, and we use seasonal and area closures to get the fishery to the point where we are no longer overfishing. Mm-hmm. That For a period of time then, you're not overfishing, but you're still overfished because of the past. But since you're not overfishing, then the population can increase and increase and increase. And then you reach a point which technically is called maximum sustainable yield. And then you manage from that point by adjusting the annual limits to allowable catch. So this is the same thing like there are bag limits for dove, duck. That's right. You know, it's all, and you have, and management agencies have what they call a toolbox, and those are the different tools. The thing that has happened in the U.S. with these regional fishery management councils is that each of them manage the suite of fishes that are in their area, and now virtually every fishery is managed with those kinds of tools. Right now, we are seeing in uh, in the South Atlantic, for example, we had the grouper were a problem species, overfished and overfishing. Mm-hmm. Very important fish for Brian mm-hmm. and the restaurant trade. Okay, but are, are there any fish right now in the South Atlantic that are where there are severe limits? I mean, the, you mentioned the king mackerel. Well, with the king mackerel is now fully recovered. Okay. All right. And uh, we also have recovered uh, black sea bass and the American red snapper. It doesn't mean that you will always have those fish on the menu mm-hmm. and available because we have catch limits and we have seasonal closures. Okay. And so the industry has to adjust and we need more options for the fishes that are out there. That takes us into market development, which is another topic. You've got a label that, John, that some restaurants have. They use the little sustainable seafood logo, which is looks like a little blue uh, yellowfin tuna. Mm-hmm. And that, that shows that it's a sustainability uh, restaurant. Well, that's, sort of, that's a similar initiative to the certified South Carolina grown that's, for vegetables that some restaurants, right. which, yeah. by the way, more and more restaurants are trying that, are, to, are trying to use local local products. Sure. Walter, the, the, the whole business of sustainability, which you raised initially, in Charleston, we did the initiative, and we really started it with only six restaurants. There were only six restaurants that said, we'll give this a try. And now there are 
well over 100 restaurants that are partners in the Sustainable Initiative. And it's, it's done several things. One, you've got a very sophisticated and educated clientele in Charleston mm-hmm. and visitors to Charleston that use that symbol to where they select where they will eat. Mm-hmm. Second thing is it has helped us create new products, new fishes on the menus that are sustainable fisheries that were not there before. Such as? Uh, such as uh, triggerfish wasn't a market fish 20 years ago. And that was one of my most popular fish that I offer. And, and, and wreckfish. And the other thing that we worked hard on in those early years in Charleston was we worked with the chefs and we actually worked with the servers. It's very important to have credibility with your clientele. And it is far better for the server and the chef to say, I don't know, but I will find out, mm-hmm. than to fake it because you never know who's sitting there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And wreckfish was, I think, one of the most significant uh, ones in that regard. There, okay. There is substitution. There is substitution, and it's okay to substitute if you can justify it and you're using an appropriate substitute. Okay. What, you're, get, you're, getting, you're getting too complicated here, John. <laughs> if it says redfish on the menu, I'm expecting redfish, not a substitute. Right. Right. And the reason that I take that very, very seriously is that it could well mean that the restaurant is paying for a pricey fish like he might be paying for grouper to the supplier. Mm -hmm. And the supplier may have paid for grouper to his source. Generally, there are five different levels that a fish passes through to get to the plate. Okay. Now, with, now, with Brian, that's different, though. That is different. I think we need to explain. So somewhere along the five different levels, it may have started off grouper, but it's not grouper now. Mm-hmm. Or it may have started off as something else, and now it is called grouper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, Brian, you do know your fish, so you get it directly off the dock. Many times I do. I get it directly off the dock. Uh, I, I know what fish look like. I'm there uh, to, to ensure authenticity. Like you said, there's always, whenever you're dealing with fish that come from all over the world, you're dealing with so many different suppliers. But with me, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm helping take the, the fish off the boat. You literally see the fish, and you then process it. You create the fillets or the steaks mm-hmm. or whatever, whereas a lot of people, it's, already, the fillets. it's already been filleted or, or packaged, and it's what the label says. Well, exactly. and, and labeling, Waller, you know, we have a regulation in the United States that is makes it difficult for us. And that is that you only need to label the country of origin if it is not a processed product. But you can take an imported piece of salmon, and if you sprinkle spices on it, you then do not have to say that it's an imported salmon from Ecuador or Chile or China. So now that doesn't happen in Europe because of their labeling restrictions, but it does happen here. And that was uh, a contentious uh, piece of legislation, but that's what we end up with. Gosh, historically, this sounds like we're going back to Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. You better not. We're very close. Well, I, I liked when people ask me about where to get fish and I say, well, Here's what I'm doing right now. When I am looking for seafood, Mm -hmm. no matter where I am in the country, I look for somebody that I trust, that they have credibility, and what they are selling me is exactly what they say it is. Are there similar initiatives to the sustainable seafood, for example, on the West Coast or on the Gulf Coast? Well, it's a very regional thing. Now, the sustainable initiative the way we did it has now been adopted by several other states, and the person that administered our program actually went to those states and showed how we set up, uh, and it has been spread widely. There is a difficult issue where certain organizations have classified fisheries as sustainable or not, you know, the one from Monterey Bay Aquarium, for example, has uh, you get a red dot, a green dot, or a yellow dot. You know, 
Red is don't do it, yellow is maybe, and the green is good to go. Those classifications, though, do not have good area specificity. So they put shrimp on avoid shrimp from South Carolina for years. And we told them why, and they said it was because of bycatch, that is the catch that comes into the net when trawling. The data they used was based on data in the Gulf of Mexico. Our fishery is different. Our catch is different. Our technology is different. And we were not subject to the bycatch issue. And yet we couldn't get them for the longest time to move us into the sustainable category. Well, shrimp is one of those things, Brian, that people often fuss about. In stores, they have been frozen. There's no knowing that where they come from. You get yours off the docks. I get mine right off the dock in, in Mount Pleasant. I know the family. It's a three, it is a three-generation shrimping family. The grandparents own the own the boat. Their son is the is the captain, uh, and their grandchildren work on the dock selling retail. And they don't dip it in any any kind of harmful chemicals, which is something that is is really really prevalent. Um, sodium bisulfates, which some people are really allergic to. Some people think they're allergic to shrimp, but really they're allergic to the chemicals. That well, are, is that a preservative? Yes, it extends the alleged lifespan. Only a few days, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to go to a large party and you see this huge bowl of shrimp and they're all the same size and they look like my index finger. I avoid them. They're not local. How do they taste, Walter? Like cardboard. <laughs> the thing why, that, the, why are we not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> something that really, really uh, irritates me is when, I, when I'm in Charleston or, or anywhere and someone's serving shrimp and grits, classic shrimp and grits, but they're using Vietnamese shrimp. That's just not that's not real shrimp and grits. You have to use southern <laughs> shrimp in your shrimp and grits. Well, how do you know they're Vietnamese shrimp? Well, they won't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the taste the taste the, will. The taste absolutely the texture is it it really is completely completely different. I've I've changed a lot of people's minds. They come to my booth saying, "Oh, I just want some shrimp, some cheap shrimp." And I'll say, "No, just take a half a pound. I'll give them a half a pound and just just go home and and taste it. Cook it as simply as possible." Um, I, I always tell people to boil the water, put the seasoning in, and then cut the water off. Take take the pot completely off of the heat and throw the shrimp in and cook them really slow so you're almost poaching them. Mm-hmm. The flavor and the texture is so much different, so much better than than these watery, uh, kind of crunchy shrimp that you get from, from Vietnam. Or China. Or, or any of those yeah. places. Uh, or where else. Brian, how are the local shrimpers doing there in McClellanville? Local shrimpers aren't doing so well. You know, it's a it's it's a hundreds of year old, uh, hundred of year old uh, industry, but now they're being forced out by these really really cheap, low quality shrimp. A lot of them are are forced to close their close their docks. Um, it was a booming industry in the early 1900s and even through the 1940s. But now, uh, once we started uh, importing the shrimp, um, they're, they're really uh, they're really cheap. They're easy to get. You can get them year round. They come in nice little neat five pound blocks that that restaurants and and purveyors can just uh, can thaw out really easily. It, it takes a little more time and effort to to source out really good shrimp, and you know. People are, are looking to, to save time and, and, and shave time off of their daily routine. So how many boats are operating out of McClellanville now, do you know? I don't know how many boats. There's there's two different suppliers in McClellanville. It, it, let me approach it slightly differently. Our shrimpers buy diesel fuel, and, you know, diesel fuel has been very expensive for the last uh, eight years, nine years. They pay more for diesel fuel than we pay for gasoline per gallon in the rest of the world, diesel fuel is the cheap fuel for engines. Not only that, in Vietnam, in South Korea, and in other developing economies, the fisheries fuel is subsidized. So that there are lots of costs that we incur that are not there in those other countries. And that's why their product can come in. Even wild caught can come in at a lower cost than ours. The other thing is, Walter, you can describe this better than I can. It is our culture is get what I want at the cheapest possible price. Mm-hmm. So large distributor systems will import cultured product, fish and crustacean, shrimp, and so forth. And they can sell it for a lot less. And certain 
restaurants and, and markets will go f- to that source. So we have a loss in market. The shrimpers will tell you another factor in South Carolina is that we have a recreational cast net fishery for shrimp in the fall. And any one of the, of the shrimp houses, the dealers that buy from the shrimpers tell you their market drops 50% the day of the recreational fishery starting. And prices go up. (laughs) Yeah. And that's another, that's a unique to South Carolina issue, and we have not satisfactorily addressed that. Well, now, we also have two, we have brown shrimp and white shrimp. Mm -hmm. That's right. What's the difference? Um, In my opinion, brown shrimp have a little bit more flavor. Okay, size-wise. Size-wise, brown shrimp are much smaller. Okay. Uh, uh, White shrimp can get to a 16 to 20 count. That means 16 to 20 shrimp per pound. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd imagine um, brown shrimp get to around the 30s, 31, 35. And there's a seasonality, too. Yeah, and let's mention that. I mean, there, is, there are shrimping seasons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so early early in the spring season, we have the white roe shrimp. Uh, they're really nice and big. They've had all winter to grow, and they're really ni- really sweet. They have that sweet roe taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one, after just a few weeks, depending on when they open the season, uh, we'll have the brown shrimp. Brown shrimp aren't quite as sweet. They're a little smaller, uh, but I think they have a much more flavor. Uh, a lot of people say they cost more because it costs more to head them. Mm-hmm. And then coming back in the fall, and hopefully lasting until December, we have the white shrimp that come back again. Mm-hmm. They don't get quite as big, but they're just as delicious. <laughs> well, when somebody says popcorn shrimp, what are they t- talking about, brown shrimp? Really small brown shrimp, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, gentlemen, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal. And I'm talking with Brian Tayara and John Dean about sustainable seafood in South Carolina. You need to know what you're putting on your table. Brian, I'm so curious. I know your family's been in the business, but you've got a young family. You just decided to do this. Well, I was working, for my, I was working with my family, and um, how this business started— uh, Darla Moore started a farmer's market in Lake City, and some of her uh, her staff called me and said, hey, would you guys be interested in starting a farmer's market business down here in Lake City? And I was like, absolutely. It was just one day a week. So I went down there, and I really, uh, really loved interacting with the customers and be able to work one-on-one and telling people how to cook it pretty quickly. My, my business grew, and Florence uh, started a farmer's market down there. And I probably doubled my business when I went went to Florence. I, I was uh, really able to, to interact more, even more with more people. I was on the radio, local radio in there. I got a little bit more publicity. And out, out of the blue, Basil Garcia from Rosewood Market calls me and says, hey, we just lost our, our seafood vendor. Uh, so I started coming there, and uh, it's been about two years now. I've been really, really well supported in the community. All right. So you're two days in Columbia. You're in Florence. You're in Lake City. I'm, I'm not in Lake City anymore. I, I'm just just me. I can only be in one place at one time. But uh, I do. I, if you get on my email uh, list um, and you're in Florence, you can pick up from my pam- my family's business it's called Orange Land Seafood. Um, and then I'm here Tuesday. Uh, sorry, Thursdays and Fridays. Let's talk about season. And another thing that people get you around are oysters. Growing up. On the Gulf Coast, you only ate oysters when there was an R in the mm-hmm. the month. Now, part of that, I think, may have had to do with the fact that in the summertime, it's hard to keep oysters fresh. But is, that, that, is there some kind of rationale for an oyster season? Well, Mark Karlinski, who wrote the wonderful books Cod and Salt, also has one on oysters. And it has more in there on oysters than you ever wanted to know. But the refrigeration is a big issue. Second thing is that when oysters really taste good is, well, through the winter. Through the winter. Through the winter, <laughs> because they're getting fat, because they're getting ready to spawn. So they load up with fat for the egg production. After they spawn, after they reproduce, they've lost all that energy in the form of glycogen, the, the sugar, muscle sugar. They've lost all that energy, and they don't taste very good. So the, you the, have to the, move around to source the oysters <laughs> where you're in between those events. Well, reading 19th century Columbia newspapers, barrels of oysters were shipped up from Charleston on a regular basis. I mean, that's... I don't know whether they were iced or not, kept alive in salt water. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess. But that's that's a fairly... Particularly for Christmas. Uh, Oysters do well on ice, Mm -hmm. under under ice. They they just close up and and wait for the the spring to thaw. But... but, uh, (laughs) They do okay. Okay. Brian, you and I discussed oyster pie recipes, mm-hmm. 
and you were shocked that Miss Neely used Ritz crackers in her oyster pie instead of saltines. And I explained to you that this was out of a new cookbook. And the reason being is that Ritz crackers still use animal fats and the saltines don't. And that makes a difference in the taste of the traditional oyster pie. And thanks for sharing that with me. It's, I'm kind of a, I kind of collect recipes from all of my customers. And so um, everyone who's told me that they use saltine crackers, I've set them straight. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me, a dimension we haven't covered quite yet on Brian is that Brian actually is a formally trained chef. He was a Johnson and Wales graduate. And when we first started the Sustainable Seafood Initiative, uh, Johnson Wales was in Charleston, and they were very strong supporters of the initiative. And that's where we developed a lot of our techniques. And one of these is the credibility of who's giving you information. And that was when the Johnson and Wales alums were going out and then going into restaurants. They understood sourcing a lot better because we actually gave lectures in their curriculum. Mm -hmm. And Brian's a product of that. So he he sees a product. He sees a kind of fish. And I can challenge him with, Brian, try this fish. See what you can do. And that is what developed the market for triggerfish and wreckfish. And, Walter, you can remember 20 years ago, there was no market for amberjack. There was no market for yellowfin tuna. There was no market for mahi-mahi. And actually, I have seen croakers in fish markets. Now, when I grew up crabbing on the Gulf Coast, one of the first you just stick your 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 fishing line in, and you'd catch a croaker, and that that was the crab bait. Walter, I've been eating fried croakers since I was born, <laughs> and and I've eaten grilled croaker in several fine restaurants in Charleston, and that's another aspect of this whole marketing. See, there are people that are coming to Charleston. A lot of people in Charleston now, they don't know you aren't supposed to eat that fish. You know, there are food cultural taboos all over the world. On the Gulf Coast, you did not eat mullet. I know they do in Charleston. but Well, actually, uh, that is something we want to test you with. All right? It's, it's, it's been around. Uh, it's been a, 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 a big... Uh, Southern food heritage, part of Southern food heritage is, is mullet. I, and, and from what I understand, it's been, it, it's more popular in the Gulf than, than it was here, but I think it was more popular here in the 1800s, the late 1800s. It's extremely popular on the west coast of Florida. Extremely popular. Where the mullet tosses. And, and there's like a that. mullet festival. The mullet tosses at the Florabama. Yeah. <laughs> okay. right, the, the bar right on the Alabama-Florida line. Yeah, I know. <laughs> about the, about the <laughs> mullet toss. Um, so, so, I've been working with Brian on mullet, and the thing is, if you test people where they don't know what it is, mm -hmm. they will eat it, mm -hmm. and especially if somebody they trust serves it to them, and that's that's where. So we're gonna we we have the opportunity for you to be a test case. Oh, okay. I'm game. All right. Well, let me let me introduce it for you. So yesterday, I I, uh, I took mullet, fresh mullet uh, from North Carolina, and. Um, the the trick right, is right, to, when you get you say fresh north. Where does that come into your foot your folks' place? Or? It comes into my folks' place. Yeah, um, they they've been working with that with a with a North Carolina supplier for since they've opened the doors okay. for thirty years, and I can get a really good steady supply of mullet from them. So what I, I took the mullet and uh, you don't scale it. That's the that's one really important thing. If you if you scale it, the, the scales are actually uh, work as a plate almost, and they hold the the moisture in. Uh, so I took the uh, I took the fish and split it from the back, is one thing that I read from uh, some old cookbooks that uh, that David Shields, Professor David Shields from USC, uh, provided to me. Uh, he said to, to split it from the back so that you don't break the belly. That when you break the belly, a lot of the moisture will, will come out that way. Uh, we soaked it in salt water, so we did a, one gallon of water to a cup of salt, soaked it for about an hour, hour and a half, and then I smoked it for another almost two hours, um, and I did I smoked four mullet. Two were on the top. I didn't put any anything else other than the, the brine on them. And the two on the bottom, I got some some barbecue sauce from uh, Rodney Scott, Scott's Barbecue in Hemingway. It's a really spicy pepper uh, mm -hmm. pepper based uh, vinegar based. I'm sorry, vinegar based uh, sauce. And so I just kept mopping that throughout the process. It was only about two hours. So we've got some here for you to try. The first, I made a spread uh, with the uh, with a not spicy mullet, and it's a just a fifty fifty mixture of sour cream and cream cheese. Uh, a lot of my customers don't like to eat mayonnaise. 
Um, and so we mix in, uh, I mix in some dill and chive and a little bit of salt and pepper. We've got some crackers here if you want to try it. Okay. John can have some. Alfred, I'll save some for you too. You'll have to, once he chases Alfred, I think you're going to have to get really after it because uh, I think it could disappear in a hurry. <laughs> And this would be good served on, on crackers. We're just using some really bland water crackers, uh, but you could put it on cucumber slices or, or anything like that or on a what salad. What I really taste is a smoked fish mm-hmm. That's it. with the dill. That's right. I mean, yeah. it's not it's clearly an, it's not it's not a salmon or a tuna, but it could be it could be any, any number of any one of any number of fish. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that and the point of that is that mullet is very abundant. And it is not a market fish at present. And if we created a, a market for it, then fishermen can harvest the fish and have a market. So it's it's a classic supply, demand, marketing. And the important thing is that somebody with credibility introduces you to that product. Okay. It's a problem. It has a, it kind of has a social stigma, especially in the South with mullet. Um, but you're here. I saw you eat it. You look fine. <laughs> you liked it. So. <laughs> and one of the things that makes this interesting to me is the economics of the product. Mullet do not cost very much for the for the product, and the process is not that difficult. On the other hand, there are other smoked fish products like sturgeon, and different trout and salmon, but the cost for the base for the product, those fish, is significantly more. So that as a business person, the margin for profit can be significantly better. And the same thing with, with, uh, with the, the fishermen as well. Um, a, lot of, a lot of shrimpers are, are kind of out of a job right now, and so they need something else to, something else to harvest for us to eat. And I think mullet would be a great... A great thing. John's been working with some people. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, I think the thing that we know is we go back to the quality of the treatment from day from moment one. Mullet have a very high fat content. That's why they smoke so well. Uh-huh. That's why they have a really. Mm-hmm. To me, it's a. Uh, if you just have a grilled piece of mullet, it's kind of a to me a sweet nutty taste, mm-hmm. really nice flavor. But they're very fat, and the fat system will break down very quickly. That's why they have a short shelf life. You have to keep them really cold from the beginning. And if you can't process, if you can't sell them that day, then you've got to process them into something. So this gives you another alternative with that as a product. And a very large, abundant fish (coughs) out there. So this is the mullet that I smoked using uh, Scott's barbecue sauce. Um, it's a little spicy, but the, most of the spice kind of uh, sat, sits on top. So if you don't like uh, really spicy food, we can kind of get you a piece from underneath. Well, I have, I, have a, I have a glass of water here. I'll, okay. I'll be, I'm more than willing to. Uh... Be careful now. It'll hit you in the back of the throat. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bone there, so maybe get it from this side. Yep. Okay. John, you want some? Yes, I'd love to try this. Right. Walter, by the way, I am one of Brian's uh, consistent test beds. So recently, we well, he'll try a fish that he isn't, doesn't have regularly on me, on Robin and me. Right? Most recently, we had spade fish. We, had, we ate some spade fish, fish a week ago. Spade fish? Spade yeah. fish. Very John cool. knows a lot about, a lot about spade fish. Spay or spade? Spade. Okay. S-P-A-D-E. It's, it looks like an angel fish. Okay. Mm-hmm. How large? They get up to five pounds, and they would make a good fillet. Mm-hmm. But they're not routinely caught by any fishery. And so we're exploring how can we get a consistent supply. And that's the other thing about this business. Restaurants, they need that menu item every day. That's why salmon is on the menu in, in every restaurant. And, and why in Charleston, now triggerfish have become that, that you know it's on the menu. Well, what's your reaction, Walter, to the to the mullet, to the smoked mullet? Well, the, the I've already talked about the dip, which is that was absolutely delicious. The Scots did add a good bit of kick. The meat is is well, would you say tight? I mean, it's it's the meaty fish. It's it's a meaty fish. Tasted good. Yeah. yeah. While I was cooking, I felt like I was. I was uh, slow cooking a really small hog. You know how you split them open yeah. and you kind of mop them with the sauce, and uh, yeah, it's really. And, it, and I'll go. I first started 
eating mullet when I worked at Annandale Plantation down on our coast, and we were in the old rice fields, and we had huge numbers of mullet that were in there. And so I took them, and I didn't know any better. I scaled them, but I used, I grilled them on an outside grill, and, and uh, I make a sauce sometimes of uh, a little soy sauce and uh, olive oil, and we made little slices in the skin. Mm-hmm. And we call it the self-basting fish. Did you eat the skin? It was crispy. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a that's a personal taste. Some people like it, some people don't. We don't worry about that. It's your call. But it was really sweet. And the other thing I did was I was feeding my graduate students, undergraduates helping us, mm-hmm. and we'd have a big fish fry. And I had flounder, local flounder, and we had mullet. I didn't tell them that the little strips whether they were flounder or mullet. Mm-hmm. But what I watched was when they came back for seconds, they were preferentially choosing the mullet. That's when I first said, this is a really good fish. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be because the meat is would be tighter. The flounder is flaky. Mm-hmm. It's really soft. In terms meat. of... Oh, Waller just tasted better, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah, the first time I had mullet, my dad grilled it. And my dad grills it. He he cuts the fillets off the side, but he leaves the scales on again. And that's really nice. I, I, maybe you found whenever you grilled it that the skin stuck to the grates of the grill. But if you leave the scales on, not only does it hold the moisture in, but it acts as a barrier, a nonstick barrier between the grills. So it's, yeah, absolutely. And they have really big scales. Yeah. They have really big scales. So, so you, you mentioned those, the mullet. At Annandale, they were in, they were in the the old rice fields, so they're in they're in the coastal marsh marshes as opposed to deep water. Well, well they're they're a shallow water fish. Shallow water fish, yeah, along the coast, and you see giant schools, giant schools. You can see them in the waves when you're at the beach, and you can see birds diving on them as well. So yeah, it's a very abundant fish. Okay, and it and globally, it's a very important fish. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's eaten all over the world. It's a prize fish. Oh, okay. well, let's not forget about batarga. Have you heard of batarga? It's uh, we, we they take the uh, the large sacks from the mullet. It's a really big uh, kind of a big industry in Florida and Cortez, uh, and they take the um, the row sacks from the mullet and salt them, and they and they salt them. I'm not sure how long the process is, but they get to a hard, almost like a Parmesan cheese uh, consistency. And you grate it over, uh, I've done it over uh, clams and pasta. It adds a really nice seafood, kind of a smoky, uh, salty flavor that's really, really yeah, delicious. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's cheap caviar. Mm. <laughs> they call it Mediterranean caviar. Mediterranean caviar, people call it. It's a common product in the Mediterranean. They use uh, mullet for it, and uh, it's, a, it's pricey. It's a little labor-intensive. Yeah. And they also use, uh, make botarga from bluefin tuna. In the Mediterranean, which is very pricey. Okay. Well, Annandale made me think about aquaculture and mariculture, which are, you know, I know there are folks who have uh, shrimp farms in Calhoun County. People have catfish farms in other parts of the South, and people who are raising oysters and clams on on the coast. And there is a difference in terminology. Mariculture s- relates to if it's in the coast in the sea. In the sea. In the coastal waters, yeah. it can be estuarine, but but still, yeah. if it's a saltwater product, it's mariculture. Yeah. We didn't grow up eating clams much in the South. Oysters, yes. But now clams are being raised commercially yes. in South Carolina. And they're available year-round. I get my clams from, uh, from McClellanville from a, a guy named Clammer Dave. He takes better care of these clams than I've ever, than I've ever seen anyone take care of clams. Um, he, w- when most people harvest clams, they just pull them out of the out of the, the dirt on the bottom of the sea, and hand them to you. <clears throat> and sometimes they're full of sand and grit, and a, and a lot of people will take those those clams and soak them in water with a little bit of um, a little bit of corn cornmeal. flour, cornmeal. And so the, the cornmeal, the the idea is the cornmeal goes in to the shell and irritates the clam, and so they just spit out everything. So they're spitting out all the grit and the sand that you don't want, but they're splitting out also the brine that really makes them desirable. So what Clammer Dave does is he, he harvests the clams that he plants. Um, he plants them as a seed, a really small clam. And then he hangs them in uh, on a barge just below the surface of the sea in these little uh, shrimp baskets. And it gives them the opportunity to purge themselves but not lose any of that brine that makes them so delicious. They're in higher oxygenated water, so they're able to grow a little bit in the, in the several days that it keeps them there. Um, they have a much sweeter flavor, and you'll see the, 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 their bellies are a little bit more full of the phytoplankton that gives them a lot of really nice flavor. 
they're really highly sought after by the chefs in in Charleston as well. Absolutely. You know, and, and this is important. I think that the clam industry, the cultured clam industry in Mariculture, started with some projects funded by the South Carolina Sea Grant Consortium, and the technology for actually running a clam hatchery was developed here. Then it went elsewhere, so we're now buying the clam stock from elsewhere. But nonetheless, that began in South Carolina. That, Down in Beaufort, right? The clam hatchery originally was at, at Folly Beach. Right? Folly Beach. Uh, and the work was done all along the coast. Okay. Yeah. So that's mariculture. The, the shrimp culture is very expensive to do. Uh, it produces a good product. The shrimp farms, though can't quite make it because of the seasonality and the growing season and the cost of feed. Uh, we don't have much aquaculture for freshwater uh, in South Carolina as much as they do in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That's a con- combination of uh, seasonality and, and available land. Okay. I know in places like Mississippi, there are lots of catfish farms. Yes. And we explored that in the 70s, and it's just not economically viable in South Carolina on a large scale like they do it there. Now, from North Carolina, we offer uh, farm-raised rainbow trout. And this rainbow trout is raised uh, right it, – it's in Canton, North Carolina, so they take some the water from the top of the mountains, really pure, clean water. Uh, they run it through their lock system, and John's really familiar with the yeah. with the different ways of aquaculture. But um, and and what makes it really sustainable is or more healthy is that they they test the waters. There's no no chemicals, no mercury levels. You never have to worry about mercury in your in your fish in in the rainbow trout uh, aquaculture farms. Uh, but what what's really interesting and what I really liked about this farm um, is that they filter the water when they when they put the water back into the stream they filter out all the waste and they use that waste for organic farmers they use it for compost so that tells me that it's a very clean clean operation now do you smoke the fish yourself the trout you get from them I do I do I um I I brine it in a sweet and salty tea uh, I get the plantation uh, tea from from Charleston and um, and brine it for about an hour or so and then smoke it with applewood. So some people call it fish bacon. <laughs> One thing I like to tell people when when they when they get that trout, um, a lot of people will take the skin and throw it away, but that's probably one of the better parts. If you're, if you're making a spread, they'll use all the meat, and then I always say to scrape that really smoky fat off of the between the meat and the skin, but then take that skin and put it in a toaster oven or heat it up in a, in a little skillet with a little bit of oil and make a little chip. Me, me, and, uh, me and John did that once for, for a party, and everyone loved it. And the yeah. other thing we, that we do is Brian has taken the skins from other fishes that, that ordinarily get thrown away, and uh, he dries them and w- makes dog treats. So dogs like fish. They love fish. Sure. And it's actually really good for their... It's good for their coat. It's very it's good for their good coat. Fat content. Exactly. Yeah. We also make uh, jerky, too. Yeah. Know? Me and John have been working on jerky for a while. Anytime that Brian prepares <coughs> his jerky and we introduce it to a crowd, it goes very well. All right. Now, the jerky's made out of... The jerky can be made out of uh, out of several different kinds of fish. We're going to start trying mullet, uh, but what I've really been using it is uh, when, whenever I take a big fillet off of a grouper or a snapper, there's always this meat left around the collar, the cheeks, and sometimes the the little piece at the end of the tail. I don't want to throw it away. For for probably uh, the first year that we uh, that we started this business, I would just fry it and eat it myself, or you know, package it and eat it myself at home. Uh, but then I started making sausages with it. Mm-hmm. We would slice it really thin, marinate it in soy sauce, and then dry it for about eight eight to ten hours and make jerky with it. Um, so I, I really don't like to throw anything in the trash. I feel like it's just a tragedy, you know. Walter, you you recall that that when we first showed up in South Carolina, nobody ate amberjack. Mm-hmm. Just the recreational fishermen caught a lot, and they come in and take their pictures, you know, hanging twenty, thirty amberjack up on nails, and then throw them over the dock. All right. Well, amberjack are a very good fish. They have good fat content, and so they have good taste. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian has a great product that he has developed, and it it's amberjack. Uh, chorizo. Ch- chorizo. It's a slightly spicy, fresh and, Mexican. And they come in little sauce. patties. And that's a fish that was not utilized. Remember, yellowfin tuna was not a fish that people utilized in, in South Carolina. 
And there was a time when mahi-mahi was not a market fish. And it, this is a good example of the cultural food taboo or taste. Now, mahi-mahi is a primary restaurant fish item now. In Japan, it's a trash fish. And in Japan, the fishermen catch mahi-mahi, bring it back, put them in refrigerated units, and ship the unit to Hawaii where it gets a premium price <laughs> because of the, it just doesn't fit the Japanese taste. So you have to look at, at opportunities. <laughs> I keep encouraging Brian based on watching a very good friend of mine, Dick Perdue, who has this wonderful orchard on Highway 11, who's very, very conscious of value added to product. And that's what, that's what I see Brian doing with the chorizo, with the amberjack burgers, and so forth. I don't. I don't like to throw anything in the trash. I take even. I take the heads and and boil them down and make stock for people to make soups. I make it really bland, so you can add whatever spices that you like. And that is, see, that's part of sustainability, to me. Mm-hmm. It is when you maximize the utilization of that fish, and meet product needs, then that means that you're going to have sustainable fisheries, and people support sustainable fisheries. As you know, there are some restaurants in Columbia that don't just do sustainable seafood, but they specialize in using local vegetables mm-hmm. and, and what have you. And we look for that. We've actually sure. gone to some restaurants we did not previously patronize. We didn't know, but found out that they were on the list and went there. And it really does make a difference. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to hear the story and see the person who's growing your food and catching your food and processing your food. Uh, where where there's a lot of groups here in the Midlands that are starting to um, that are that are starting up to help inform the the public more about local food and where to find it and what to do with it under the guidance of Sustainable Midlands. We started a group called the Midlands Food Alliance, and it's comprised of local um, local chefs local food producers. Uh, we've got some, uh, some attorneys that are on board. So we're going to, our first project is going to be working on a food map or a, f- a food supplier map. Um, and so we're going to map out where the different farms are in, in the Midlands, mm-hmm. where you can buy their vegetables and their produce, mm-hmm. what restaurants are serving them. And we'll have brief bios on everything. So then you can, you can just pick up this guide and you'll know exactly where and how to find local food. I think this is very important because uh, we don't have good access to that information. I have access to certain information, but I don't know other places. And and, uh, my experience is with Dick Perdue, because he's tight with the North Carolina people, Mm -hmm. North Carolina has done a wonderful job with this. And you can go any place in the state and find sources. And not just that they produce it, but then what restaurants Mm -hmm. use it here. And that's our goal with the Midlands Food Alliance is to bring it back up to the to where North Carolina is. And there, is. Are, there are a couple restaurants in in Greenville, for example, that are very big on on this this very high quality dining experience. Okay, Brian, any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Experience. What, what's been your strangest experience in this business with a customer or as a chef or my and, and this is hilarious my my strangest uh, experience when i first started coming to columbia i was selling some clams and um so it, we we had a, a great day at rosewood market it was on a friday we we're you know ready for the weekend uh we got home and around eleven thirty at night i got a phone call i was like oh, i'll just you know i'll just uh, cancel it and listen to it you know call them back tomorrow um, so they left a voicemail, and I wish I still—I wish I had the voicemail with me. But the woman says, uh, "I have a problem with your clams. The the shell the shell is opening, and the clam is coming out and moving. There's something wrong. There's something wrong." And I had to call her back and console her. She was so distraught because her clam was coming out looking for food. And I said, "Ma'am, this is a live animal that you're going to eat." <laughs> and she didn't realize that. She did not realize it, but I set her straight. <laughs> okay, and and. John, you've been dealing with with the state's freshwater and and saltwater fisheries for years. Experience over time seems to me that we're doing a lot better job with caring for our resources than we were. It's a very difficult climate right now. Mm -hmm. We're actually having more difficulty getting regulations in place for the long term for resources than we have in the past. Mm And the problem about that for me is that where we have done it, the success is worth the effort. And that it is a question of understanding that what we do now, 
does have a, an effect on the future generations to have and enjoy these resources that we have in South Carolina. Well, John Dean and Brian Tayara, I want to thank you for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journey. I'll have that conversation with John Dean and Brian Tayara, but first, your NPR news break. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was quite a tasty show. I ate mullet for the first time in my life. Talking with John Dean and Brian Tayara was, for me, quite an educational experience, particularly when they talked about what is now being marketed, not just in South Carolina restaurants, but around the world, Fish that were not eaten commercially 20 or 30 years ago now have become very popular. How some fish go out of availability because of overfishing and the constant search for sustainable seafood. I think it's really interesting that this is one of those cases, the sustainability initiative, that South Carolina was a pioneer and it's now being copied on the Gulf Coast and out west. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.